0: Good morning, I wanna start this morning by introducing you to someone. Does anyone know who this guy is? If you said Don Sutton, give yourself a gold star. Don Sutton is perhaps the greatest Major League Baseball player that you've never heard of. Maybe that's a bit of an exaggeration, but I don't think it's overstating it to say that Don Sutton's accomplishments in the realm of baseball have largely gone unnoticed through the years. He only won 20 games in a season one time. And by the way, 20 win seasons are a metric that baseball critics often use to debate whether you're great or not as a pitcher. He only had one season in which he won 20 games. Another metric that is often used to debate whether you are great or just good is no hitters. And Don Sutton never threw a no hitter. In fact, he only led the league in one major statistical category one time, and that was in 1980 when he led the National League in earned run average. Other than that, he never really did anything too noteworthy other than just show up and do his job. That was the thing about Don Sutton. In 1986, June 18th to be exact, Don Sutton rubbed elbows with Major League Baseball's elite as he entered into the 300 win club, which is another metric that is often used by baseball critics to debate whether or not you deserve Hall of Fame recognition. He won 300 games, and only 24 other Major League pitchers have ever done that. Here's what he said about himself He said, I'm a grinder, a mechanic. I never considered myself flamboyant or exceptional, but all my life, I found a way to get the job done, and get the job done, he did. Through two decades, six presidential terms, four trades to other teams, all he did was consistently show up and do his job. In September of 1986, Inside Sports Magazine called him the family sedan of baseball's men on the mound. He wasn't a Porsche or a Ferrari like Nolan Ryan or Sandy Koufax. No, he was more like a Toyota Camry. Not very fancy, but trusty and reliable. And folks, the guy that we're going to be talking about this morning fits that as well. Trusty and reliable. He didn't burst onto the scene in any big way. He didn't make a huge splash Although he is well known, it's not because he slayed a giant or because he battled an invading army. No, what makes this person stand out is his integrity. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at integrity in this series called It's Your Move. Because it is your move. You have a decision as to how you want to be remembered. And it starts today. It's your move. You get to choose how people react to you, how they see you. And how you live from this day forward, even after you're gone. Will you leave a legacy of faith? Will you outlive your life? It's your move. You get to decide that. But if we're going to talk about integrity, we need to have a working definition, don't we? So here's the definition we're going to use for this series. Integrity is doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Or we might could define it this way. It's doing what you ought to do, even if it costs you. Integrity is personal, but it's not private. It may be personal, but it affects other people. There's this thing in the engineering world called structural integrity. Structural integrity refers to a structure's ability to hold together under a load, including its own weight, without breaking due to fracture or fatigue. When the structural integrity of a thing is compromised, The load is transferred to and potentially overloads surrounding supporting structures. And people are no different. We are exactly the same. A failure in personal integrity causes stress for those around us. The failure is never isolated. The load is always transferred. Your irresponsibility is someone else's responsibility. When I was a teenager, I didn't make the best of decisions. This caused my mother and father great angst. My irresponsibility became their responsibility. They bore the burden of their son making poor decisions, and that's how integrity works. It's not just about me. Strong integrity has the potential to strengthen those around me, and weak integrity has the potential to stress those around me. Let's turn our attention to a man of incredible integrity. You know, in a few weeks we're going to look at a man who forfeited his, his future over a bowl of stew. He's a guy who was confronted with a choice and he made a really bad decision because he was hungry. This morning we're going to look at a guy who was also confronted with a choice as it applies to food and yet his integrity won out. So turn with me to Daniel chapter 1. And before we start reading, let's kind of set the stage. So it's about 605 BC. The king of Babylon, who is Nebuchadnezzar, is on a winning streak. He's defeated the Egyptians and what's left of the Assyrian army. And he then turns his sights towards the capital of Jerusalem, Judah. And he takes their king and hauls him back to Babylon because Nebuchadnezzar had this weird obsession with collecting kings. Anytime he defeated a nation or a city, he would take the king back into his possession, put him in prison, and then when he'd throw a party with a bunch of dignitaries, he would parade these captive kings out to show how powerful he was. But kings weren't the only thing that Nebuchadnezzar collected. Notice what is written, starting in verse 3. Then the king told Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom there was no impairment, who were good-looking, suitable for instruction, in every kind of expertise, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability to serve in the king's court. And he ordered Aspenaz to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king also allotted for them a daily ration of the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank and ordered that they be educated for three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was a smart guy. Instead of sieging a city or a nation and killing all the people there, he picked out the brightest and the best of the young men, and he took them with him. Now, this, of course, made Babylon a very cosmopolitan place, but he would take these men... He would change their name, make them slaves. And so, as you can imagine, for a young man taken captive by the king, selected by the king to live in his royal palace, if you were a young man in that day and time that fit that bill, you you won the lottery. Yeah, it seems bad that you got taken captive, but it's very likely your parents would have sat you down and said, hey, look, don't mess this up. You know, it's bad that we're going to be separated, but at the same time, you've got it made here. You're going to be educated. You're going to live in the king's palace. Part of the privilege of that was you're going to eat from the king's table. The same food he ate, you're going to eat. So Daniel is going to have his greatest needs met, food, shelter, and security, as long as he obeyed. Daniel was part of the Fab Four. You know who the Fab Four were? Daniel, and then who else? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? And the fab four stand out as the brightest of the bright and the bestest of the best, right? If we can say it that way. Upon arrival in Babylon, the king changes their names. And when you name something or change the name of something or someone, it implies ownership, doesn't it? If you go and adopt a cat or a dog from the pound, you may not like the name that it was given, and so you change it. And you can do that because you own the pet. That's well within your right. And so the fact that the king changed the name of Daniel and his three friends signifies ownership. It's as if the king is saying, I own you now. You belong to me. I am your Lord. You do what I say or else. So Daniel and his friends have it made. You have to change your name. I mean, that's a a minor thing compared to what you're gaining in the process. But this is where the story takes a turn. Keep reading with me. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now again, we're going to look at a guy who traded his future for a bowl of stew. That was a really bad decision. And you think, well, really Esau, why would you do something like that? Some might say the same thing about Daniel. I mean, really, this is where you're going to draw the line? This is the hill you want to die on? I mean, just eat the food. Don't let your religion get in the way of messing up something really, really good here. Just eat it, keep your mouth closed. But notice verse 8 again. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food. The ESV states it like this. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. If you use the King James, it says, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. So you have a new home, a new education, a new name. All that's one thing, but Daniel drew the line in the sand when it came to food, when it came to the king's meal plan. Being raised in a Hebrew home meant that the law of Moses forbids certain foods, and yet those foods, many of them, were going to be on the king's menu. To eat this food would mean That Daniel and his friends would have to compromise their loyalty to God. And in reviewing the king's edict, Daniel decided that the decision is clear. They couldn't do it. He couldn't adhere to the king's diet. You know, sometimes when we sit down to eat, we'll say something like, Dear God, please bless this food to the nourishment of our bodies. Thank you for the food, bless it to the nourishment of our bodies. And we're admitting that there's a chain of events that went on, right? That God gave us the food, that he caused the rain. To, to shower the crops. They grew up. We eat the food that nourishes our body and it allows us to live at the center of his will and, and, and give him thanks in the way that we live our lives. Well, in the ancient world, the people looked at it this way. God provides the food because he sends the rain and he keeps away the locusts. The food goes into the body, which makes the body healthy, and ultimately the person can then prosper. Now, the issue for Daniel is that the God in this chain is not the big G God. The God in this chain is not the one true God of the Bible. No, the God in Nebuchadnezzar's chain is Marduk. And Marduk is the God of the Babylonians. So Marduk provides the food which makes the body healthy and provides prosperity to the one who eats it. So Daniel would be admitting that Marduk is above the one true God. And let's face it. If you were an outsider looking in, you might tend to believe that because Babylon's thriving and God's people are in captivity. But for Daniel, he had already made up his mind that he wasn't going to play that game. He made it ahead of time. He refused to be evidence. He refused to be evidence that Babylon's God was anything other than a figment of their imagination because this wasn't about food. This was about something deeper. It was about who ruled Daniel's life. And because the big G God sat on the throne, there wasn't any room for some made up little G God. And here's the deal. Daniel didn't make this choice in the moment. You get that, don't you? This was a decision he made ahead of time, long before Daniel made up his mind before there was ever a story about Daniel, before there was a book that bears his name, before there was a story about Daniel, Daniel made up his mind. In fact, the only reason we have a story about Daniel is because he made up his mind ahead of time. Winter was coming and a hunter needed to keep warm. So he decided he was going to go shoot a bear. He goes out to hunt, and lo and behold, he finds a bear. And just as he raises up his rifle to shoot this bear, the bear says, wait, wait, wait. Why do you want to shoot me? And the hunter said, because I'm cold. I want to use your fur for warmth. And the bear says, well, I have a need, too. I'm hungry. Maybe we can strike a deal. And they did. The bear ate the hunter, so he wasn't cold anymore. And the bear wasn't hungry anymore. There's some things that you can reach a compromise on. Other things you cannot. When it comes to integrity, there is no compromise. And Daniel had an airtight conviction that there was no settlement to be reached between the big G God and the little G God. This was an area of non-compliance. End of story. In fact, there would be no story of Daniel had he compromised on the food. No lines in, no interpreting the king's dreams, no rising to prominence in the king's palace, no being used by God to tell His story. If Daniel had not made up his mind ahead of time and drawn a firm line in the sand, we would have forfeited the opportunity to, to read his story. He would have forfeited the opportunity to write a story because, please hear me on this, folks. When you do what you ought to do, even if it costs you, you write a story worth reading and a story worth remembering. A breach in integrity tells a story as well, doesn't it? It's just not a story worth remembering. A breach in integrity usually leads to another breach in integrity, doesn't it? You think about it. Maybe you've experienced this or you've seen it in action. A breach in integrity usually leads to another breach in integrity and another and so on and so forth. After that first breach, it gets easier to breach again and again. Each breach makes it easier to settle for less than what God expects. We sacrifice our integrity, and when we do, we close the book. You know, the story could have been told very differently had Daniel decided to just eat the food, and God can tell his story with or without you. He can even use a breach in integrity to tell a magnificent story, but wouldn't you rather be the hero in the story? I think I would. The height of the Civil War, there was a gentleman who didn't want to fight. He didn't want to pick a side, so he decided to wear a Confederate coat and Union pants, and guess what happened? He got shot by both sides because that's what happens. Some things you cannot compromise on. Some things are an all-or-nothing commitment, and Daniel understood this, and he understood it early. He made up his mind before his city was under siege, before he got carried away to Babylon, before he became the property of a foreign king. He made up his mind ahead of time what he wanted to be, and what he wanted to be was a man of integrity. He wanted to serve the one true God no matter what. He made up his mind knowing full well that it might limit his time. Daniel didn't know that God would intervene. He didn't know that God would step in. He didn't know how this whole thing would turn out. There was no guarantee that God would step in and protect Daniel. Integrity is doing the right thing, even if it costs you. And there was no guarantee for Daniel that it wouldn't cost him. However, no matter the cost, it's always worth the risk. It is always in our best interest to place our lives in the hands of God and let him do what he intends. But I want you to notice something else about Daniel's integrity. Keep reading with me. Verse 9. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. The commander of the officials said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has allotted your food and your drink, for why should he see your faces looking gaunt in comparison to the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please put your servants to the test for 10 days and let us be given vegetables and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined in your presence and appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. So Daniel handled the situation very respectfully, very resourcefully. After resolving not to defile himself with the king's choice food, he didn't go on a hunger strike. He didn't stage some radical protest. Instead, he sought out the commander of the officials and respectfully shared his dilemma with him. Now, the commander is a little bit concerned, more than a little bit concerned, because what if the people in his charge didn't eat the food, and they start looking malnourished. What's well, going to be off with his head. It's going to be assumed that he didn't follow the king's orders. But Daniel had full confidence in his 10-day miracle diet. Actually, he had full confidence in God. Even though God had not promised to intervene, Daniel was confident that the story would play out in his favor, so long as it was God's story. It's when we try to write our own story that things get unreadable. You know, primarily there are three reactions when our faith is put to the test. We either separate, we assimilate, or we exacerbate. Separation is when we pull out away from society and we hold up. The church does this sometimes. In the ancient world, you know, there were these monastic societies. Monks would just live together, nuns live in convents, hermits living in solitude. The fear was they would be stained by the world, so they remove themselves completely from the world. And sometimes that's necessary. Sometimes we do that. We homeschool our kids, or we, we send them to a private school because we're concerned about the public school. Or perhaps we only let our children watch certain things on TV or, or, or read certain things. I mean, sometimes you have to draw a line in the sand. I get it. But you can't totally pull away from the world because you live in the world and the Great Commission tells us to go out into the world and make disciples of all the nations, right? Like Daniel, we've got to draw some lines in the sand, but separation can also hinder the work of the church. Because if we don't go, who's going to? But then the other response is completely opposite. It's assimilate. And assimilate is chameleon Christianity. That's where we camouflage our faith just so we can blend in with the rest of the world because we don't want to stick out like a sore thumb. You know, who wants to be a religious weirdo or some Jesus freak? And so we just kind of get in to fit in. However, even though Daniel could have done this, he could have justified his actions by saying it's just food. God understands. He didn't because assimilation is easy. It doesn't require any conviction, but it compromises integrity. And then there's exacerbation. And if you know what it means to exacerbate a situation, it basically means to make it worse. You know, the Bible is our sword, right? And certainly it is for some Christians. They use their sword to cut people down who disagree with them. We use our Bible to beat people over the head. Rather than preaching the truth in love, we breach our integrity with hate. But I love how Daniel handled the situation. He was resourceful and respectful, and he handled the situation not with gall, but with grace. And so here's my question for you. What do you want to be? Because it's within your control. What do you want to be? How about being a Daniel? Don't you think that's why his story is included in Scripture? Oftentimes we read the Bible with admiration rather than application. We admire Daniel. We applaud Daniel. Bravo, Daniel. Way to stand up for what's right. God doesn't expect you just to read the book of Daniel and walk away saying, yeah, that Daniel, he was a good guy. No, he expects you to apply Daniel's characteristics to your life. In fact, every Bible character, whether good or bad, God expects you to learn from them, to imitate the good and filter out the bad. Don't repeat their mistakes, but do the good. And certainly that's the case with Daniel. Do you want to be a person of integrity? This is not meant to to simply be applauded, but to be modeled and imitated. Look with me at verse 21. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. You say, well, Chris, that's a rather random passage to read, a rather random verse to read, but it has great significance when you consider how long it was from the time that Daniel was taken into captivity, that from the time he made up his mind about not eating the king's food to the time of King Cyrus. You know how long that was? It was about 70 years. For 70 years, Daniel had the king's ear, Nebuchadnezzar, Darius, and now Cyrus. Daniel was with them all. God had strategically placed Daniel in the palace of these men to influence the most powerful men alive. And guess what set him up for this? The fact that he made up his mind ahead of time, way back in the day. And every other decision throughout his life can be traced back to that. Those decisions get easier and easier. When you make up your mind ahead of time, when you choose integrity ahead of time, decisions get easier and easier as you go along. Let's jump ahead. We're about out of time. Luke, uh, let's look at chapter six, Daniel chapter six, starting in verse three. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and the satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit, and the king intended to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel regarding government affairs, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption because he was trustworthy and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him regarding the law of his God. So real quick, here's the setting. Over 50 years have passed since being taken into captivity. The Persians have now replaced the Babylonians. The new king, Darius, decides that he's going to reshuffle the empire. So he appoints 120 governors and three administrators to oversee the 120 governors. And he just goes off and plays golf or does something. I don't know what he does. But wouldn't you know it? Daniel is chosen as one of the three governors who will oversee and essentially run the day-to-day activities of the empire. Not only that, notice what verse 3 says again. The king intended to appoint him over the entire kingdom. But he's not even from there. He's 70 years old. But Daniel had proven himself to the king that he was faithful and reliable and trustworthy. He was a man of integrity. And of course, this didn't set well with the other officials. They were jealous, and so they sought to find some sort of charge against him. Now... Daniel's been in government for 50 years. What politician do you know that doesn't have any dirt on them after 50 years? Surely they can find something. No person who has been in government for 50 years is pure as the driven snow. At least I don't think so, right? And yet what it says is that they could find nothing regarding government affairs, Daniel was a man of integrity. They could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption because he was trustworthy and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. That is something to aspire to. That's the goal, right? The other officials reach the conclusion that the only way they're going to get any dirt on him is if they get between him and his God. Then these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him regarding the law of his God. Daniel's enemies recognized that he was a man of integrity and that this man of integrity was connected to the God that he served. That's why he was a man of integrity. So the only option was to go after his God, and you can read further in the story and see how that worked out. What do you want to be? And have you made up your mind? Let me tell you, you need to make up your mind now. Don't wait. Many people want to wait. Many people want to make up their mind in the moment, almost when it's too late. Many people don't want to make up their mind ahead of time because it locks you in, and it gives you no leeway. But listen, making up your mind ahead of time means that it gets easy and easier to make decisions as you go along. Being a person of integrity builds upon itself. You make up your mind ahead of time and you have less and less problem making up your mind as you go along. You make that decision one time and then it gets easier. Some people don't want to make up their mind now because they're afraid that it will cost them in the long run. They're afraid they're going to miss out on something and I will tell you, you will. If you make up your mind now to be a person of integrity and to live at the center of God's will, you will give up some things. But what you will give up will never compare to what you will gain in the process. For me, there are some breaches of integrity that I can point back to when I was 17. That if I'd have made up my mind then, I wouldn't have to deal with the regret today. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you would have done what was right, even if it cost you back then, it wouldn't be costing you today. You know, Daniel was a man of integrity at 70 because of a decision he made when he was about 17. Make up your mind now. I don't know if you've seen the movie To End All Wars, but in that movie, it tells the story of allied soldiers who are, who are held captive in a Japanese prison camp. And one scene in the movie, they're discussing what they're going to do when they get out, when they get released, when the war's over. One of them says he's going to start a family. Another one says he's going to be a teacher. But the colonel doesn't say anything. And so they look at the colonel and they say, well, what are you going to do, colonel, when you get out, when the war's over? And he says, I'll just prepare for the next war. And that's really what we do as Christians, isn't it? That's really what we do. We, We just prepare for the next battle because Satan hadn't surrendered. So we just move on to the next battle. But here's the deal. If you're a person of integrity who makes up his mind ahead of time, those battles become easier and easier to win. So you don't have to second guess. You don't have to think about it. You already made up your mind ahead of time. So let me ask you once again, what do you want to be? Because it's your choice. It's your move. What do you want to be? And have you made up your mind? Can we help you this morning? Luke's going to lead us in a song. If you have a need, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing.